Please listen carefully. 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 Hello, and welcome to the Utterly Moderate Podcast, where two reasonable social scientists discuss important topics by focusing on just the facts and none of the unneeded opinions and biases. I'm Allison Dagnus, a political scientist. And I'm Lawrence Eppert. I'm a sociologist. How's it going today, Allie? It is going fine, Lawrence. I think fine with an <laughs> F. There, there was a, quite a sigh before you said fine. Yeah, there is. <laughs> yeah. How about you? How's it going? Good. Good. I mean, the, the semester's chugging along. We're going to have fall break soon. Is it soon? soon I'm just, I'm curious. Is it soon? Because I feel like it's not soon enough. The longest nine days of our lives. Swear to God. Well, (laughs) we've been here for 12 years, so. Yeah, this semester has been the longest decade of my life. It really, really has been. Yeah. (laughs) So, how's it going besides... Besides the semester. <laughs> well, no, you have had you have had quite a week. And and I mean, hasn't like every time I see you, you're like, the funniest thing happened to me today. But then you're oh. running to class. So you can't tell me what happened. What has been going on with you? Oh, yeah. I, I saw you this morning and I said, don't forget to remind me to tell you what my daughter said this morning. So uh, <gasps> oh. I, <laughs> I was overhearing my little daughter, Charlotte, who is five, oh. talking to my older daughter, Ella, who was eight, and <laughs> she said, uh, Ella, mommy told me when she was a kid, they didn't even have the internet. I mean, what did they just do? Nothing. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. That's so cute. <laughs> it was like totally earnest. Like, she's bewildered. She just couldn't oh. imagine what would life would be like without YouTube or you know, TikToks or whatever. What did they do? <laughs> nothing. What did they just do? <laughs> nothing. <laughs> I think five might have been my favorite, favorite age for Caroline. I loved her at five. Oh, they, they're they're just they're so sweet and autonomous and wide eyed and and like loving and also honest. So it's this very odd combination of just like just pretty and salty and sweet and kind and mean all at once. Yeah, like, we're getting a lot of the salt lately. Yeah. So, uh, Charlotte is very sweet and she still has this lisp and it's just, she's the cutest thing in the whole world. But, but, uh, she has been a teenager lately because Uh-oh. everything is just so much sass. I feel like I'm talking to you. Oh, hey. And, uh, <laughs> She's I'm my she's kidding. my spirit animal. <laughs> my my uh, my sister calls her that, by the way. My sister Julie calls Charlotte her spirit animal. <laughs> but um, yeah, so um, she was doing something today when she's getting in the car, like pushing Ella or something. And I was like, Charlotte, if you do that again, you are not jumping on the trampoline for the rest of the week. And she goes, I didn't want to jump on the trampoline anyway. Oh, wow. Oh, she got you. Yeah. Well, no TV either. <laughs> <laughs> then I waved to the neighbors. We're fine. <laughs> We're fine. <laughs> I'm a good parent. <laughs> My kids love me. <laughs> they do. Right? Daddy Happy loves household. you. Yeah. Daddy loves you. <laughs> Did I mention I love you? <laughs> Good parenting. So you've had a busy week as well. You 
had a big event recently. Oh my gosh, we had um, our annual political speed dating, which isn't dating at all, but it is a <laughs> it is it is part of our diversity week. So, um, my best friend Stephanie Gerard is our associate provost, and um, we have diversity week, which is pretty much her brainchild where we are trying to open up the campus to a whole bunch of different, you know, different groups and and different types of people and different, you know, attitudes and ideas and things like that. And so uh, I came up with political speed dating, which was the idea that students would sort themselves by center left or left of center, or right of center, whatever it was they wanted, sit on opposite sides of a big long table and meet someone with whom they might disagree on any issue and just listen to the other person and they get to pick the issue and they just get to listen and there's no challenging it's not a debate they just listen and ask a polite follow-up question so if you're sitting across from someone who's like i love hunting i'm a hunter i'm a gatherer um and uh and hunting is a big part of my family and i like hunting i like guns and that's who i am then the other person can only ask a follow-up question like, so did you go hunting with your parents when you were little, with your grandparents? What did you hunt? Uh, and that's it. Like, no challenging. Like, if, if the person said, you know, I hunted moose, you can't ask like, well, did you ever think about the moose families? Like, you know, you can't, you can't, do, you can't push back. You just listen. And then it's your turn. And you get to say, I feel very strongly about um, animal rights, you know, <laughs> you get to talk about animal rights and the other person listens. And then um, you have a minute where you find common ground on on something that's not political. You find common ground on like, you know, ice cream or where you're from or what your major is or something like that. And um, what we find is that kids just end up chattering with each other about stuff and they end up really, really loving it. And so, you know, we the group of young people would come and they were like, you know, lefty and like, oh, ha, I'm ready to show the world, you know, how lefty I am. And then, you know, the conservative students would show up and like, ah, oh, I'm ready to show the world how right of center I am. And by the end of it, everyone's just like, blah, 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 like just talking to each other. And it was just, it was great. Like, you know, I said at the end, I was like, okay, so here's what we're going to do now. And they all sort of looked at me and I said, did you talk to somebody who you disagreed with? Show of hands. And all of them raised their hands. And I said, and was it okay? And they all nodded. And I said, great, have a good night. And they all were like, <laughs> yay! And they all got up and left. And that was that. So, I mean, it was a terrific event. And, you know, they all kept talking to each other. In fact, half of them really didn't leave that quickly. There were cookies involved <laughs> and some lemonade. And uh, everybody had a good time. And it just sort of goes to show you that, uh, as they say in a lot of churches, it's hard to hate up close. So uh, I like to bring people together to show that it, it really is hard to hate up close. That's a really cool event. Thank you. I made it up myself. Yeah. I mean, stuff like this specifically is so important in this political moment in this country. And so I really admire that you do stuff like that. So good work, my friend. You have had a very busy week as well. I have. And I feel really good right now to be sitting down and just, you know, slowing down and talking to you because I was getting ready for this big talk that I was doing on Tuesday at Dickinson College, which is in Carlisle, Pennsylvania, which is up the road from Shippensburg. And uh, it was a big book talk about my book that came out earlier this year, Poorly Understood, What America Gets Wrong About Poverty. With and, Mark uh, Rank, friend of the pod. Yep. I wrote that book with Mark Rank and Heather Bullock. And um, Mark was zooming in from St. Louis. So, 
Uh, we were both there to, I did a little bit of a talk beforehand and then both him and I did a Q and a, um, and got a bunch of great questions from, there's lots of not just students there, but also lots of community members came. Oh, was, that's so great. Yeah. It was really cool. And speaking of books, by the way, Allie. Yes. Uh, my next book, which is On Inequality and Freedom. I just I've got, heard of that one. I know you have <laughs> uh, because you wrote a chapter for it. I remember that. A really great chapter. And I just received a note from our editor at Oxford University Press that the book will be published this coming February. What? what? Are we going to have yeah. a virtual book party? <gasps> that would be a great podcast. A virtual there book party. Hey. So look That's for that to, to awesome. drop, as the kids say. I believe uh, they do say that. <laughs> they say they other things too, ago. but yeah. yeah, they probably did say that. It will be ago. on fleek. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Allie. Well, enough about me. Uh, what's on tap for the show today? I am so excited. Today we are joined by Kimberly Whaley, who is a law professor and a legal analyst and a wonderful writer and just a terrific um, brain um, on top of being a really wonderfully articulate person. Um, and she is, uh, she, ta she talks and writes a lot about the law and also about democracy. So she's our guest today. Yes. And we are going to be talking about the health of American democracy. And um, I don't know, I think both you and I aren't, aren't feeling too good about the health of American democracy. So, uh, before we throw it to Kim and bring her on the show, uh, on a scale of one to 10, how concerned are you about American democracy at the moment? Oh, I am. I am very concerned. Um, and and I am I'm fearful of, of many things and I am not prone to hyperbole about the important stuff. I am very prone to hyperbole about silly things. So um <laughs> About the things that matter most, I think words are very important. And so I never jumped on board when, you know, we would hear ads all the time in the past, like, this is the most important election of our life. You know, every two years we would hear that. Um, and I never bought that. But right now I am very concerned that we are at a a, a real breaking point for some of the democratic norms that we have enjoyed. Um, and I think that they are, that they slide, they slide away from us. They slip away from us very easily and they do so without us knowing it. And um, when they're gone, they're too difficult to get back again. Um, and so I'm deeply concerned and uh, in, in a way that I, never really anticipated I would be, to be perfectly honest. I never thought that we would get to this point in my lifetime. And um, and it's upsetting, to be frank. Um, on a scale of one to ten, quite frankly, I, th I think we're at, we're at a nine. Um, I still want I still want one more I want one more level up um, to really to really lose my mind. But um, but I'm at a nine. Uh, because there have just been things that have been happening that are so out of the norm that have been um, dismissed by so many people as being okay. And that, and, and 
the breaking of norms and the breaking of rules and the poo-pooing of any of this by a large segment of the population, that is, to me, distressing at a 9 out of 10 level. Yeah, I'm at least at a 9 out of 10. I'm there with you. I might be at a 10 out of 10. Um, I'm actually writing a piece right now that's going to be published later this month, and I'll read you a a short excerpt from it. Uh, I wrote, There is no time to lose. Researchers examining the health of democracies around the world are sounding the alarm. Quote, The warning signs are flashing red. Unquote. Here in the United States, we may be on the verge of the greatest political and constitutional crisis since the Civil War and quite possibly the suspension of American democracy as we have known it, in the words of Robert Kagan. The problems are numerous, and in no particular order. Extreme polarization, erosion of support for democracy, weakening of social cohesion, dissemination of misinformation and disinformation, low levels of political participation, extreme government gridlock and dysfunction, partisan gerrymandering, an attempted coup, the big lie, an insurrection, fake election audits, authoritarian state legislature power grabs, voting rights rollbacks, threats to elected officials and election workers, secessionist talk, and the continued popularity of many partisan media outlets, unquote. So I'm really worried. I think I might be at a 10 out of 10. I think the thing that worries me the most, to be quite honest, are the various state legislatures around the country that are changing the rules so that, or at least trying to change the rules so that they can subvert the will of the voters in future elections. What worries you most? I I think it's, I think that is part and parcel of, of everything that I fear. It's that, it's that, movement towards authoritarianism because um, the studies that have been done show that about 40% of the American public um, is really amenable to authoritarianism. Mm -hmm. I mean, are are really sort of in favor of having one person with a whole lot of power um, take over. Well, hopefully our guest today, Kim Whaley, can help us sort through some of this and maybe feel a little bit better about the direction of our country or maybe feel a whole lot worse. (laughs) We'll see. (laughs) I'm sure she will. Kim Whaley is a professor at the University of Baltimore School of Law, as well as a writer for a number of outlets to include The Bulwark. We are so pleased to have her here. Yep. We'll have a great conversation with Kim Whaley coming up next. Kim Whaley, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Allie. In both of your books, you want Americans to take things more seriously, the the Constitution and voting, um, and to not take things for granted. And I I feel that so powerfully. Um, How do you think we got to a place where so many Americans 
began to take the most important components of our democracy for granted? How did we get here? I think it is partly because we haven't in a few generations really had to worry much about it, that the gears of democracy have just kind of hummed along. Uh, You know, my grandparents lived through the Second World War. And of course, um, some of our parents remember Vietnam and all of the struggles, uh, the riots and the civil rights struggles, but didn't necessarily experience it. I mean, I I remember the Clinton years, where as much as I worked on the Whitewater investigation and was, you know, um, around the age of Monica Lewinsky, in hindsight, it's kind of amazing, uh, it still didn't really, really need to worry much or feel like we had to worry about going to war. Uh, the idea was we were always, you know, pretty much landlocked and we had the best military around. So that wasn't really an issue. The Cold War is in the rearview mirror. Um, the economy under Clinton was excellent. And uh, I, I, I lay the blame to a large degree on the rise of the digital Asian social media and the fact that technology has outpaced law. It's outpaced learning. It's outpaced how we think. It's outpaced how we interact. It's outpaced um, psychological research on the impacts on our brains and our children's brains. And in so many ways, the the framers of the Constitution's one of their worst nightmares, um, not my word, not theirs, but was this idea that um, populism, propaganda would eclipse reason. And that bad news travels faster than accurate news. And uh, I, we live in this sort of scary postmodernist world where we are debating the existence of legitimate facts. We're debating the viability uh, of science itself and of knowing things. And when that goes, someone else gets to decide what you know and what you think. And it's just very hard to wake people up to the the reality of of the urgency of in this moment and that includes members of congress right i mean we have democrats that control both houses and the presidency and as much as you know infrastructure is important and it affects people's lives the democrats are fighting amongst themselves about that uh it, you know where frankly the progressives are ignoring the reality that the votes aren't in the senate and there's not much nancy pelosi can do about that so to hold out for an impossibility really doesn't help. Um, but secondly, even that that's the priority when we are about a year away from the midterms, where by all accounts, for a number of reasons, it's likely that one or both houses of Congress will go to what I call the revised Republican Party. It's not the traditional Republican Party, and it's not a party that supports democracy anymore. Um, so we're about a year away. When that happens, kind of all bets are off. So I, I'm disheartened that Democrats aren't taking their political capital in this moment to save the republic itself. When I say that, what I mean is people voting for their own political bosses. Um, the boss is not picking and choosing winners and losers. Uh, and so I, I wish I had an answer. Maybe it's that it's in the it's on the lips of someone who has a, a degree in social psychology um, as to why we are so collectively blind and willfully blind to what is, in my mind, the biggest threat to the future of my children in my lifetime. And that's beyond COVID. That's beyond um, climate change. All these other things. And that is the fact that we are pretty close to a society where liberty is optional when it comes to government moving forward. 
I, I don't think Democrats are taking it as seriously. I, actually, I think there are a number of people who say democracy is in trouble. And if that's the case, it should be an emergency and we should be acting urgently. Um, why aren't they using their political capital to do what I also believe is the most important thing that they should be doing, which is to stop what just failed from actually succeeding next time? Well, you know, I'm also not a political scientist or a pundit, but I have many friends in Washington who are and talk about this quite a bit. Uh, I think the eye is on the midterms in the old fashioned way of winning elections, and that is through policy. So if there are roads and bridges built, very popular, the infrastructure bill, if there's something that's done about the lack of access, universal access to the internet, if there's something even nods to climate change, um, you know, universal pre-K, all of these popular programs. And now the Democrats are sort of in a horse trading uh, ritual over which, whether to fund a select few in a major way or just kind of tinker at the edges of a lot of them. That's that is the old world, not the new world. In the new world, I think you're absolutely right, Lawrence. Uh, and that is that we're in we're in a countdown, not around uh, casting votes. That was the fight before 2020 in the pandemic and all the efforts, um, frankly, by the right, including the Trump administration, to make it harder to cast votes in a pandemic, uh, slowing down the postal service, attacking mail in voting as fraudulent, et cetera, et cetera. We are now in a world where it's about counting votes. It's it's about even legitimately cast votes. And we're going to be in a world uh, in 2025 on January 6th, where your vote will be canceled, crossed out, ignored, erased. So, you know, I'm not in the halls of Congress. That's one sort of like big piece, even as a staffer the, of my um, sort of political science background that I don't have firsthand knowledge of. Uh, but it's very frustrating to those of us who have been sort of the canary in the coal mine around this issue that even people like, you know, um, Jamie Raskin, who is was is a colleague um, I taught sort of sort of filled his shoes for temporarily for a semester when he, uh, at American University's Washington College of Law, where uh, he was a constitutional law professor in in kind of a, um, a breakout group there that that ta- thinks about these issues. Um you know, and many others, of course, there is not even in this moment legislation pending in the U.S. Congress to address the massive gaping holes in the Electoral Count Act. Um, and we have multiple bills around casting votes. How, and I'm, I'm 100% behind a lot of those measures. The, the Freedom to Vote Act, the Senate just introduced it, Amy Klobuchar, it's a tremendous piece of legislation, very important, uh, making it easier to register, easier to cast votes, um, enfranchising felons. Everybody who wants to vote can get to the polls, but if the Electoral Count Act isn't adjusted, state legislatures and or Republican Congress can steal that under the gaps in that legislation that have been around since 1887. And it's not even on the table. There's not even a bill to fix that. I mean, I, I've heard there are efforts to come up with a bill and to to sort of whip some votes together. Um, but, you know, why is that? The filibuster is a big problem. Um, you know, two holdout moderate senators, uh, Kristen Sinema and Joe Manchin are, are holding the Democratic Party by the throat. Um, big money, right? There's a, I, I haven't, I don't, I can't vouch for it, but there's certainly recent reports that Sinema is, and Manchin are, are beholden to, um, to big corporate donors now, and they wouldn't be alone in that. Uh, for a long time, Congress hasn't been passing legislation consistent with, popular will. Most Americans want immigration reform. Most want 
some reasonable measure of gun control. Most of them want some health care package. Congress isn't doing these things. So, so we have to ask ourselves, who are they beholden to? Who are they answering to? They're not, they haven't been answering to the voters for a while, arguably since the Supreme Court and Citizens United uh, enshrined constitutional First Amendment rights in corporations, which are legal fictions, and so gave them access to the airwaves, given their massive deep pockets that regular people don't. And the other piece was the Supreme Court's gutting in 2013 of the Voting Rights Act, um, which put the Department of Justice on the block to make sure primarily Southern states didn't get cute and use excuses to keep people of color, color from the ballot. It's, it's a lot of things, unfortunately, coming all together in addition to in the 90s, um, uh, under Newt Gingrich's Republican revolution, they, he sort of, when he was a House Speaker, shortened the work week, uh, sort of made it harder for people on the Hill to talk to each other. I mean, that was by design, turned it into a dog-eat-dog, mudslinging fight around appropriations, things that funding the government wasn't wasn't a tool in the toolbox to, to get for political gain. So so there are lots of things um, that 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 weigh on this issue. Uh, it's not a single cause and it's not a single fix. And as I said, back Back in the Mueller investigation, when I kind of started doing some of this public speaking on these issues, um, it takes heroes. It's going to take heroes to save American democracy. And we've seen a few. Um, Mike Pence, who took a lot of heat the last four years, he he kind of saved saved America from a, an unprecedented coup by talking to former Vice President Dan Quayle and refusing to do what Trump, President Trump wanted. Um, you know, he doesn't, he deserves a lot of criticism as do many of the other enablers, but, but there are people along the way that are doing the right thing. Just, just not enough. There aren't enough in the Republican party right now. There are very few. Uh, and in the democratic party, I think there's a lack of galvanizing around what's important and too many voices wanting, you know, wanting their part of the sandbox to, to be prioritized. And it's just, Penny wise and pound foolish, if you ask me. So you mentioned not just voting rights rollbacks, which is clearly a part of our concern, but you also mentioned who gets to count the votes. And I wonder if you could, for for somebody who's not really familiar with this, is totally uninitiated and hasn't been following this, talk about some of the more egregious steps that states around the country are taking to ignore the will of the voters in the future and how concerned you are about that part of the strand in our democracy right now? Well, I, I get asked this question a fair amount. And frankly, there isn't, there aren't many people that are read in deeply to it. That is that are experts on this in part, because we walk around with this uh, assumption that American democracy will, will rise in the morning like the sun. And a couple things that surprise people. Number one, there is no affirmative right to vote in the Constitution. It does not say all citizens shall have a right to vote. Why does that matter? Because when when states pass laws making it harder to vote and those laws get challenged in court, the Supreme Court ultimately is not required to give much weight to that right. We have an affirmative right um, to free speech, so and to a freedom of religion, those things get put on a pedestal. Now, even Second Amendment gun rights get put on a higher pedestal than voting rights. So that's number one. Number two is um, there isn't even when it comes to the presidential elections. I mentioned earlier an old arcane statute called the Electoral Count Act. 
a lot of the Constitution isn't what we call self-executing. That is, Congress has to pass laws to, to kind of put into business the Constitution. So, for example, all the federal courts in the country are established by the U.S. Congress. Uh, the Constitution doesn't create them. Congress tomorrow could abolish them all, with the exception of Chief Justice Roberts on the Supreme Court. Um, likewise, Congress passed a statute in 1887 giving you know, putting meat on the bones of the Electoral College, which, of course, is the representative system for casting votes for the presidency. When we go to the ballot box, regular people, you're actually voting for electors who then go and cast votes on behalf of that state. We call that the Electoral College, but it's not a place. It's not a building. It's really just a process. You could call it you know, the electoral voting process or something like that. In the Electoral Count Act, believe it or not, this is just stunning, really. There's nothing requiring states to even count the popular vote in casting ballots. Most states count the popular vote. And if you asked me this a year ago, I'd say the problem with the way those states do it, for the most part, with the two exceptions, is that it's a winner-take-all uh, endeavor. So 51% vote for Joe Biden, 49% vote for, for Donald Trump, all the Electoral College votes for that state in most states would go to Joe Biden. So the 49% effectively get canceled out. That was a problem a year ago. Well, now, amazingly, they don't even have to count, on theory, because it's not required, states don't even have to count the 51%. They can count zero. Because um, there's nothing mandating in the Constitution or in any federal law that you give any credence whatsoever to a popular vote. The states tomorrow could say, and Arizona, to answer your question, um, has uh, proposed legislation, for example, to just ignore the popular vote altogether and say the state legislators get to pick the electors. I mean, that is not a democracy, right? So even if you have a state that is going to give a nod, so to speak, to, okay, we'll keep the law in place that say winner takes all, we'll count at least the 51%. Um, there's another wrinkle in this statute that allows the legislatures between November and December to call the election, quote, failed, right? So they'll say, oh, there was fraud. And we saw this last time. They don't, I mean, you know, this is what I tell my students, my civ pro students, um, you know, in court, you have to have evidence of fraud. And that's why 60 plus cases were tossed out challenging fraud. They, judges aren't allowed to even entertain a lawsuit if there's no evidence. Um, that's not so under these statutes. So they can claim fraud. And then between November and December, the state legislatures can call it a failed election, and just pick whoever they want. Uh, then if, say, the people make it past December, all right, and that failed election process doesn't work. And I should say, to answer your other question, how is that being gamed? Well, career election officials who call those elections Across the country in Georgia, for example, it was Brad Raffensperger who famously declined to find enough votes to swing Georgia to, to Donald Trump. Well, the state, the legislature in Georgia has fixed that. Um, they now make that call, not Brad Raffensperger. Uh, so changing the rules so that the failed election goes to politicians who want a certain candidate, just declaring a failed election. But even if we get past December, Okay, and we get to January fifth or January sixth um, in Congress. Uh, if this is a, if it's a Republican-led Congress, the next round, and we've seen now internal memos that there was pressure on Mike Pence to do this this last round. 
there's no standard, there's no evidentiary standard for refusing to acknowledge the electoral college certification from any state. So say New York goes to a Democrat, a Republican-led Congress can say, nope, we think there's fraud. We're not going to count that state's slate of electors. And then there's mechanisms in place that basically throw the election to Congress. So we can in name be a democracy, but if each stage there are opportunities for the, the prevailing party to cancel votes, to trash them, put them in the garbage, ignore them, cross them out, pretend they're fraudulent, and then pick their electors, pick who's in charge. I don't know how different we are um, from a, po- a police state, frankly, where you've got a democracy by name, but it's really the bullies at the top that are picking and choosing who's in power. That That's really, that's the threat. And in this moment, unfortunately, as I said, we're about 13 months out to that because it's going to be determined in the midterms. The midterms um, tend to have low voter turnouts. This this issue is, does not poll well. People don't have it on their radar. And we have also, on top of it, uh, we just had a census. And so districts are being redrawn. And some say those are going to lock down a Republican-led um, Congress, regardless of what, who turns out. So, you know, we're in trouble at every turn. And even my children, are, I've mentioned that they learn in school that the Roman Empire got too big and it failed. Right? Uh, one of my my seventh graders learning about the Aztecs who had this tremendous, extraordinary society. And then the Spaniards came in and killed them all um, because they believed that that the gods had somehow in, 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 uh, ordained them with some power when they showed up with their muskets and beautiful horses. So, so, you know, we look back on those relics as, oh, that's another civilization, but there's nothing uh, about being American that, that preserves this, this gift of democracy more than the 300, 230 plus years that we've, we've been enabled to, able to enjoy it for all of its flaws. In your book, How to Read the Constitution and Why, you write, if a generation of Americans comes along and happens to allow elected representatives to flout the Constitution's terms, then the structure for holding government accountable to the people could fall apart for good. And you liken it to the no jumping on the bed rule for kids, which I thought was was wonderfully done, very apt. Um, I think about our current political climate and the incentive structure we have right now for elective officials, which has more to do with performative outrage than it does for constitutional protection. Do you think that there's a way to incentivize con- constitutional protection for the public and make it something that voters demand of our elected officials instead of this kind of performative anger um, and the negative partisanship and affective polarization that voters are rewarding with elections that we're doing right now? I think it's possible, Ali. I don't think it's likely. And I think it takes, it will take a lot of steps. Number one is that the internet needs to be regulated. Um, when I was growing up, we were taught in school how to find facts and do research and find data. How do you use a card catalog? How do you do microfiche? Now, the question is, how do you sort through all of this stuff to identify legitimate sources and verify them? And we're not teaching students how to do that in part because we don't know. It's happened so quickly 
we don't know. So, so what's, what's polarizing is, is, are, are the lies and, and there's no accountability for the lies. And, and that really is at the feet of Donald Trump. I mean, 30,000, 30,000 lies plus an office that the Washington Post counted. And there's, there's no pushback. There's no, and what's happened? Other politicians have said, wait, whoa, that works. So we're jumping on that bandwagon, two failed impeachments. Um, so, so I think that's, I think that's primary. I, I don't know how we get back to accountability in office when there's so much misinformation. It starts with what we're doing in this, in this podcast, which is educating people about how, you know, the, the lawnmower of government even works. Only a third of Americans can name the three branches. They don't understand it. Um, but, but as far as the passions that have been stoked around issues as fun- fundamental as, you know, whether people should have to wear a mask to minimize the 700,000 de- death toll in America, particularly for children who are not authorized to be vaccinated. That's really a problem. I don't know how to undo that except on a person by person level, except on a family by family, parent by parent, friend by friend, teacher by teacher level. And I know we're going to get into that. Um, but, I, but I also think we need to go back to teaching a value system. Um, I, don't, I don't have the statistics in front of me, but, but Americans have never been less organized around organized religion or adhering to organized religion. I mean, I was raised Catholic. I'm not a practicing Catholic. I think there were, today there were a lot of downsides for me around that education. It was very fear-based. It was very shame-based. But I, I, ta- I learned sort of pillars of ethics that were grounded in something higher that, that dictate how I live my life, and which includes, okay, I'm going to adhere to my own truth and to truth. And if people are mad at me, then okay, I can handle that. And I get people mad at me on the left. I get people mad at me on the right. I get my kids mad at me. We all do. Um, so it's a multifaceted thing. My concern is that what it takes is at this point, there just isn't the time between now and next fall to fix it. Uh, absent an international crisis or a national crisis of the likes of 9-11, um, where we're collectively traumatized all at once, that it can't be this otherness. Well, I don't have COVID. I don't know anyone in this COVID, number one, or something, you know, and maybe this is in the same category, like a civil war. And I saw disturbing statistics this week that more than 50% of Republicans, and I think in the 40% of Democrats, um, want successions from the union, blue and red states. Um, it might come to that. It, it might, it might come to that. And I don't know what's on the other side. Uh, you know, people across the aisle, across the political spectrum want a new constitution. I guarantee you it's not going to be one that is written by the people around the interests of the people, given all of these other powerful forces that have already all but destroyed American democracy. Can I can I ask a follow-up question to that? Because that actually was one of my questions. Was increasingly I'm hearing more questions from members of the community and students about a civil war. And to me, I guess I just don't understand how that would even work because we're not divided by geography. I mean, you know, you 
yes, we are we are sorting ourselves, and I certainly understand the the bishop argument of that, and I, and I get that. Um, but we're still living next to one another, even as divided as we are. Um, so Matthew McWilliams does a lot of work um, about um, American authoritarianism, and and in his research, he found that around forty percent of Americans that he polled have authoritarian leanings, and and he. He kind of came up with this fairly in-depth, and I'm just going to summarize a couple of the the big points, This um, the paranoid style, you know, that Richard Hofstadter first wrote about in the 1960s, um, that first the purveyors, you know, conjure an other, and then the other is described as different from the mainstream, um, and then identified as a clear danger to majoritarian values. Uh, that there's, you know, the fear is stoked of a hidden conspiracy, and then the other is manipulated to rationalize actions that violate fundamental values, norms, laws, and constitutional protections. And and I feel like we are already there, right? I feel like we are already seeing this kind of behavior. But I also feel like so many of us are looking at this as a political maneuver as opposed to what and and you do such a good job in your book of of distinguishing between policy and politics right so i i i've looked at this as oh you know what that's that's like a money grab for ratings or it's trying to get elected it's you know trying to to when you're being primaried um you know how much of this do you think is electoral or financial and how much of this do you think is a real attempt at a political power play at at a real effort to co-opt our democracy i think there's in my mind very little question that it's the latter and i've also i do a show on um instagram and it's posted on youtube called simple politics i had ruth ben Giat on my show who's also an expert in authoritarianism from nyu and wrote a book called strongman uh, also, I've I've assigned the book "How Democracies Die" to professors from Harvard on this. This is not a new page from the playbook. Um, it's human nature to amass, entrench, and abuse power. Uh, and authoritarians, people that that are good at that, um, are doing it for a reason, right? Maybe there are myriad reasons. Maybe there's psychological pro- pro- um, sort of dysfunction, etc. But but this is not new to world history. And as far as how a civil war would look, I don't know, but we can look at other parts of the world, Afghanistan, Iraq, where uh, warring factions just wore on for, for decades, for generations, and children are born and live full lives and die in the midst of civil wars. Or you can look at North Korea, um, born, live, and die in concentration camps. Uh it's all of the, these kinds of things are in, just inconceivable to Americans. Um, but we're all people. We're, we're, and I try to say this to my students too. It's not like judges are better than, than politicians in terms of their susceptibility to darkness versus light. It's that they have rules and they have consequences. I mean, Ali, you mentioned jumping on the, on the, on the bed. I mean, if anyone's had a child or babysat a child or been around children, if you've got the no jumping on the bed rule, but you let it fly one time, the rule's gone. The kid is going to do it every time because they know you're not serious about it. That's really where we are with the American constitution right now. It's just a piece of paper. I think Americans assume when I ask people when I when I speak on this and they say I ask what's a constitutional right the answer is inevitably well it's just it's mine I'm born with it 
And the answer really is no. It's only so good as it's enforced uh, off air. Uh, I was asked, okay, where are we on a scale of one to 10? I mean, I'm close to a 10. I, I don't know how we get even down to nine in this point. I mean, I, and I don't want to depress people. Um, that being said, I, I also believe in human ingenuity and the force of, of, of what people can do together. And amazing things have happened in short periods of time, but it takes an awakening and it takes, you know, if anyone has kids also, you pin them down to get, I mean, I can't even use this analogy anymore, but I did to get their vaccinations or their flu shots or whatever when they're one and two and three and five and all that because it's their well-being. You hold their hand when you cross the street, even though the three-year-old wants to do it on their own. And if they pitch a fit, too bad. You drag them across the street so they don't get mowed down by a truck. And it's the hang on to your kid's hand moment when it comes to democracy right now. Uh, I I just, whatever's on the other side is ugly. It's dark. It's not nice. Um, I don't know how it's going to look, but, but we're, we're, we're about there. Um, and the clock is ticking pretty quickly. I'm going to ask you about, uh, political reforms later, um, and ideas you have for political reforms, but given that you've mentioned it a few times, I'd like to ask you about, uh, media reforms. It sounds like you don't think there's much that we can do, but, um, I, I think this is poisoning the American mind. Is there anything that you think we could do? I'm not saying it yeah. has to be legal. I mean, I don't know where the, the site is going to be for this action, but is there anything we can do to, to get this poison out of us? So Congress, you know, if you turn on the regular te- television, you can't hear profanity. Um, Congress has in the past regulated communications. You can't hear it on regular radio. Um, but our, but our, uh, you know, fourth grader can pull up porn on the internet. No problem. That's the other piece. So we've got, what do you do with commentators on television? Congress can mandate, listen, there are certain things you can't do. And I think the first, the first amendment is run amok a bit when it comes to, um, making arguments against regulation in the interest of the public. The first amendment is not unlimited, <laughs> you know, possessing, uh, child violence, what some people call images, child pornography images, but it's really child abuse. Um, that's illegal. You could say I'm speaking that way. That's my religion, whatever. It's illegal. That's an example. So, so we've, we've distorted the first amendment when it comes to regulating what goes on the airways. The second piece is, is the internet, um, itself. Originally, the regulators treated the internet, and this is still the case, almost like a bulletin board in your church. So if you go to your church in, you know, 1975, you'll see a cork board and on it. And sometimes this is still the case in small neighborhoods. My, my local pharmacy has this in my little neighborhood. Um, I have little, you know, thumbtacks with babysitting services, dog walking, vote for so and so for city council. Um, and so Congress back then thought of the internet as that and said, well, if, um, if Mark Zuckerberg lets lies go on, on the on Facebook, all he's doing is acting like the cork board at the church. Well, of course, that's not the case. Um, Mark Zuckerberg is is you know, and others, not just him, um, like m- most uh, entrepreneurs <laughs> and capitalists, is interested in making money, and they they have very complex algorithms that feed information into your phone that's different from the information that's fed into my phone um, that is tailored around perceived beliefs and buying and buying habits. So, so that can be regulated. 
So could you give us um, your wish list of the most important political reforms that our democracy needs right now? And as you do so, could you tell us which ones could happen and which ones are on your wish list, but you don't see happening? Wow. Uh, Number one is an affirmative right to vote in the U.S. Constitution. All citizens shall have the right to vote. That is unlikely because it takes both houses of Congress and three quarters ratification of all the states to do that. But I would like to see that. The second best is the Freedom to Vote Act, uh, which the Senate just introduced through um, Amy Klobuchar and others. It has bipartisan support where Angus King was an independent signed on. I don't know that it has any Republicans, but it has Joe Manchin, who's a moderate Democrat that I mentioned is kind of blowing up a lot of the Democratic uh, initiatives right now. They're all on, on board and and the piece of that that I really like is there's a there's an affirmative right to vote statutorily in there. And it also confines the Supreme Court's ability to muck around in this space. Uh, so I'd like to see that pass. I think as far as hemorrhaging, I mentioned earlier, Electoral Count Act, I think that needs to be stuck on an appropriations bill or something somewhere, even if it has to be slipped in uh, without the filibuster. Uh, one that one that under one the radar, one that undercuts state legislatures' ability to throw out votes and that kind of stuff. Exactly, and right. Congress's ability. It's going to tie the hands of of le- of politicians that they can't just ignore the will of the voters. I mean, it's it is it is the beating heart of uh, of American democracy itself. That that needs to be saved. If you imagine triage, right? If you're in a car accident and you're bleeding out internally and you broke your ankles, uh, they're gonna they're gonna stop your they're gonna get your heart working properly and stop the bleeding before they treat your ankles. And, and to me, um, the freedom to vote act coupled with, uh, the something to the electoral count act, plus this John Lewis voting rights act, which I'm, I mentioned earlier that the Supreme court killed the justice department's ability to be the cop on the block when States make it harder to vote. Um, the civil rights leader, John Lewis, who died um, recently, that this act was renamed for him. It would just fix that. And the Supreme Court basically told Congress to go and fix it. So that's there. Uh, you know, I would probably get money out of politics too, Lawrence. I, w- I would say, um, I, you know, and this is something former Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, who astonishingly wields more power than probably anyone in Washington over the past few decades and still does, even though he's a minority. This was something he worked on for many years was um, to lift any restrictions on big donors controlling politics. I I think getting those back, which would again require probably a constitutional amendment to say um, corporations are legal fictions that are designed to limit financial exposure. They are not human beings with beating hearts. Uh, corporations can't be put in jail, for example. Only people who run the corporations can be put in jail. So I kind of think the people's First Amendment rights and their right to, to pick their leaders should supersede um, supersede the rights of these fictions that are designed to just make massive amounts of money. Um, so, so I would say right now, those are the most critical reforms. And then uh, the third would be. Did you did you say how, at, did you say how likely the electoral reform was? That so far the electoral count act there isn't even any legislation pending. Right. And, and how about the last one you said? Uh, the Freedom to Vote Act is has been has been um, proposed, and and I, I I don't think they have the ten Republican senators that they need. Um, to overcome a filibuster. There's some talk of maybe amending the filibuster just for voting rights legislation. I don't know, but the likelihood of that, it's not zero. It's not 
high. Um, I think we have to get through infrastructure first, but the money in politics, I assume, is zero. Pardon? Money in politics, I assume, is zero. Oh, that's zero. That's not even close because that that would require a constitutional amendment. But just to also be clear, you know, Congress kind of goes out to pasture after November of this year because they're worrying about the next election. They don't want to do anything that's going to upset voters and they want to be reelected in the midterm. So the window for a lot of this is closing between now and November. So unfortunately, again, this is why I put the risk of us turning into some version of the handmaid's tale uh, in the next few years is pretty high. Uh, because these proposals are there and they're not being enacted. So what do people need to do? Vote, 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 vote in the midterms. Vote for anyone who rejects the big lie. I don't care what party they're from. Anyone who still adheres to the old-fashioned notion that people pick their politicians in America um, and reject this, this fraud around fraud because it's that lie that is paving the way to steal the next election the way we talked about. We have to come together as Americans and hold each other's hands. It's we the people, not we the politicians, we the powerful. Uh, and it starts, you know, anyone who's listening to this podcast, tell one person about this podcast. Tell one person that they need to ring the bell for democracy and that's the way, hopefully, from a grassroots level, if there were, we have a chance of saving this for our children and grandchildren, that's where it has to start. It's not going to happen from the top down. And unfortunately, the Supreme Court is as much of a problem, uh, much more of a problem than a solution right now. Kim Whaley, this has been so fantastic. I, I wish we could keep you on for the next 12 hours, but you have to go uh, hang out with Jake Tapper. Uh, <laughs> and that's the coolest thing in the world. Thank you so much for joining us today. Well, I enjoyed very much the conversation. Thank you uh, for inviting me and also for, for, for sort of pointing, pointing the finger at this really, really important topic. There's a chapel in Kansas standing on the exact center of the lower 48. It never closes. All are more than welcome to come meet here in the middle. It's no secret. The middle has been a hard place to get to lately, between red and blue, between servant and citizen, between our freedom and our fear. Now fear has never been the best of who we are. And as for freedom, it's not the property of just the fortunate few. It belongs to us all. Whoever you are, wherever you're from, it's what connects us. And we need that connection. We need the middle. We just have to remember the very soil we stand on is common ground so we can get there we can make it to the mountaintop through the desert and we will cross this divide our light has always found its way through the darkness and there's hope on the road up ahead
thank you for joining us on this episode of the Utterly Moderate Podcast. Before we go, we want to remind you to visit our website, utterlymoderatenetwork.com. There you can find all of our podcast episodes and their companion resources, our guide to reliable news outlets, the contact page where you can suggest topics for future shows, and more. That's utterlymoderatenetwork.com. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll join us on our next episode. And until then, we'll play you out with friends of the show, the Riders in the Sky. Happy trails to you Until we meet again Happy trails to you Keep smiling until then Who cares about the clouds when we're together Just sing a song and bring the sunny weather Happy trails to you Till we meet again trails to you until we meet again happy trails to you keep smiling until then who cares about the clouds when we're together just sing the song and bring the sunny weather happy trails to you Goodbye, good luck, and may the good Lord take a liking to you.